It's a Shot in the Arm podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and we're brought to you in partnership with Bay Area Global Health Alliance. We're a podcast about health and human rights, and particularly how revolutionary change in technology or the emergence of new diseases can either bring people together or rip societies apart. Of course, our concern rightly at the moment is about COVID-19 and the massive uh, discrepancies in access to vaccines around the world. But there is another utterly devastating and revolutionary pandemic of the 21st century. It started towards the end of the 20th century and it's far from over. I'm talking about HIV. Our guest today was on the direct front lines of that epidemic as it emerged in London in the early 1980s. Our conversation, which we've been really looking forward to put together for a while, actually coincides with the release of a British drama called It's a Sin that has got rave reviews uh, and is about the very front lines that our guest was on. And I truly believe that it is because of the bravery and passion of people like our guest that we were able to mount even a modicum of the response needed to fight COVID-19. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Rupert Whittaker of the Duke Institute, He's a British psychiatrist, immunologist, and patient advocate, and he's one of Europe's longest surviving people with HIV. Rupert, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks very much, Ben. It's great to be here. Well, it's a real honour to have you on the show, and you describe yourself as a senior clinician and health scientist, but that your real expertise comes from your extensive experience as a patient. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think the, the most immediate thing is that I've learned things as a patient that I would never have been able to observe or understand as a clinician um, or as a scientist, obviously. So it, it, uh, it's the act of uh, being in relationship to the um, health services and how they have and really haven't worked at times that I found uh, enlightening. I think that's a nice way of putting it. Mm. I mean, as we were putting uh, the discussion guide for the, for the podcast together, um, it struck me that the relationship between the patient and the health services that are supposed to support them have really driven your life since a teenager. That, that's your passion. And, and I wondered if a way to understand this passion is, is to follow your own story, one of epic challenges, but also one of extraordinary victories. And, and, and I, so I, I hope that's okay as a, as, a, as a strategy for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. I think it'll give a good framework and, and that'll be a help. So then let's, let's start in the mid-1970s. Um, you came out at the age of 15 in an enchanted English village in Hampshire. Was that a bit like coming out in Miss Marple's St. Mary Mead with the, with the neighbours twitching at their curtains? Uh, how was that? Well, uh, not it was, it was a little bit different. Um, uh, I went to Lord Wandsworth College, uh, which is in Long Sutton. That's a small village uh, in the middle of farming country, really. Uh, is rural Hampshire and the um, college itself uh, sits in uh, the centre of 1200 acres acres of its own land um, and when I was at school there was one bus a week to the nearest small town but no bus back and I'm not quite sure how that worked but apparently it did um, 
So that's um, so there were actually there weren't really any neighbours, only cows, and uh, so no, no twitching of neck curtains. Although that would have been rather interesting <laughs> if there'd been a sort of a few local murders. Um, I could have provided a, a little list. Um, but in it's it's a public school uh, in the English parlance or a private school in American parlance. Um, and originally was an agricultural college um, with scholarships uh, for boys from broken homes. Um, mm. And that that's, doesn't mean Borstal or Juvie, uh, but means that are boys with divorced parents. And um, it's, it's actually still known for producing uh, good rugby players, international rugby players, uh, but not much in terms of intellectuals. Um, so, yeah. So, so you broke the cast there, and um, and, and you went on to Durham, uh, to Durham University, to study philosophy and psychiatry. But then, but then things changed really rapidly. Um, your partner Terry became extremely sick with what turned out to be HIV, and he died shortly thereafter. Um, and and you know, Terry was. Terry was not just one of the tens of millions of people that we've we've lost to HIV. Um, if you don't mind my saying so, mm-hmm. he was he was the Terence Higgins after whom the Terence Higgins Trust was <laughs> named. Um, you know, the London-based internationally renowned charity. And THT was where I cut my teeth as a young adult in the AIDS movement. And, but I know nothing, nothing about him. And so, do you mind my asking how, how did you meet him? What was he like? Ah, well, um, we met when actually when I was uh, 18, I think, Um, either that or yeah, around there anyway, I just turned 18 and I met him in a dance club um, on Tottenham Court Road in in London. And uh, very simply, at that time, there was a certain look called the clone look, Um, check shirts, uh, moustache and short hair. And uh, I saw him. He he had the most bizarre way of dancing. Um, it's kind of his friends called him rubber legs. Um, and it was this. Yeah. Anyway, it was very strange. So um, I I looked at him. He sort of noticed me, and then we got chatting. And he he was first of all really nice and kind. Um, very chilled, lay back, and that was actually a characteristic of him um, that stayed um, through our fairly brief relationship before he died. Mm. Um, and uh, he he didn't really, nothing really ruffled him much. And it was a, a, a wonderful thing. And he was, uh, an example of his kindness was that uh, he would always be cooking me food because I didn't know how to sort of, um, you know, boil an egg. Um, but he wasn't eating, eating himself because he just had no appetite and he was losing weight. And and I, I was, even I, you know, as a teenager, when you really don't notice anything other than yourself, um, I noticed that that was, that was not right, um, that he, he couldn't eat. So there's a, a, a little bit of a sort of a, a quick sketch of him. So Terry died in 1982, but but you yourself started to develop what are now clearly AIDS-like symptoms in in 1981. What happened there? Um, I had uh, 
most probably been affected in about 1980. Well, I left school early um, and uh, I went to Germany to do a kind of a year between school and university. Uh, and um, <laughs> I got a job there and ended up moving in with my boss. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that. Um, and uh, after that, I, 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 my guess is that I got infected that way and um, I got these these symptoms um, and then when I came back a year later um, to the UK I still wasn't really great mm. um, but then I met Terry um, and that was fine but then after Terry died I also started to sort of go downhill a bit um, I lived on the third floor of a building and I used to have to sort of um, you know walk up one flight and, and rest and then walk up another flight and rest and then you know, the final flight and i was 19 that mm. wasn't kind of really normal and they had no idea what was wrong with me so um i was required to move from my first university durham down to london university after the first year and after terry died and i mean it's a it's a an odd way of asking this question but how why do you think you didn't die at that point in the early 80s? Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a, it's a good, I mean, it's a, a key question in a way. I, first of all, HIV is a fairly slow developing disease generally, unless you're diagnosed late. And I had only been sort of infected, I think, maybe three years. And I think the average latency is about 10 years. So I had some time. Maybe it was, maybe it was yeah. Um, yeah, about three years by that by that time, um, and so I, uh, when I, uh, after my undergraduate degree, also I I sort of moved to the states. But I saw um, over the years I saw two people. One is Ted Kapchuk, who's a um, very famous Chinese um, of, of a physician in Chinese medicine, and uh, he gave me these absolutely vile um, herbs that I had to brew up and which I did for years um, and also then um, I saw a Tibetan herbalist uh, who was uh, the Dalai Lama's own physician by any chance and there's a kind of a, an interesting story there um, the long and the short of it is that uh, it bought me time but um, let me just sort of tell you about that that uh, th uh, that experience with the Tibetan physician because it uh, it was all through a, a, an interpreter mm -hmm. i had to give a urine sample and he felt my pulses and he, he then he he sipped my urine which i was quite shocked about um and then he felt my pulses and the interpreter said uh, please take off your right sock he wants to look at the fourth toe and that was the toe i had a deep fungal infection on. right and he could apparently tell it from my pulses you know for in my wrist um and that was one of the things that's like hmm, i think there might be a bit more to tibetan medicine than yeah. I, that i knew of but i think the long and the short of it is that it bought me time um the problem is that uh about uh actually about 12 years after i uh was first infected um i was then raped and reinfected uh, with a very different mm. 
um, it seems to be a far more virulent strain. Before that happened, I had a thousand T cells. Yeah. Um, a thousand CD4 cells, rather. And within three months, I had less than 90. Um, and so it's then a question of, okay, all that saved time was now lost. Yeah. Um, because of a reinfection through yeah, exactly. the most unimaginary circumstances. Mm. But can I take mm. you back to then 1982 when you um, and a group of, a small group of others came together, I think in a, a, a bar in, uh, was it the Vauxhall Tavern or was it over in the East End? I can't remember. It was the London Apprentice. The London well, Apprentice over in the yeah. East End. And, we tended and, to meet them. Yeah. And you formed a small community group uh, using Terry's name that became the Terence Higgins Trust. Did, did you have any sense then that what you were creating was going to be transformative? Uh, no, we, we literally we were doing what was in front of us. Um, Martin Butler had the idea, he was a Terry's friend, um, had the idea originally and Martin um, got a, a group of us together uh, at his flat in the um, in you know um, in the East End of London, and then as we sort of grew a bit, uh, we started move, meeting in, in one of the uh, pubs. Mm -hmm. And um, what we did is that we sort of original the original idea was to find funding for research, and then we fairly quickly realised that we needed to do, do direct services. Um, because people were already thing, things were happening fast. And a couple of things is when um, trying to set up the charity, we, um, uh, well, actually, I was tasked with trying to set up the counselling service yeah. um, and contributed to the education um, service as well. And uh, so one of the things was, OK, I don't know. I don't know anything about counselling. I don't even know what it is. Um, so, uh, so I sort of contacted some community groups and got some ideas. But they all said, oh, you know, contact the NHS. So we did. And the attitude was there. There was kind of pure opposition. Yeah. There was like, we don't need you. Um, what you provide, what you will provide, will not be necessary. Um, we're all that's necessary, uh, and um, you know why are you bothering? Um, and it was really, it was really obstructive and arrogant. And so basically, we had to set up those services without any um, involvement from the NHS until, of course, they got overwhelmed. Yeah. And then it was like, well, okay, um, well maybe we can uh, work together. You know. And and it's funny how here we are in 2021, the idea of community-based services supporting clinical care is, is, is standard. You wouldn't think of actually of doing it otherwise. Um, hmm. but, but speaking to some of our generation, um, they, they, some of them talk as if they were already fighting a system that was hostile to them. That speaks to your point about the, the National Health Service. So, so they felt that they were strengthened to some degree to, to just deal with the, the crisis, the horror that was now upon them through the AIDS epidemic. And, and I'm sort of wondered how, how did you make sense of infection and loss at such a young age? 
I don't think I really did make sense of it. It's uh, it, that was a process that took many years um, and a lot of sort of internal or inner work. Um, what I did, well, actually, first of all, I was expecting to be dead within a year because that's typically what happened. Um, in fact, a, a, a year after Terry died, I met up with, um, by chance, the junior physicians that had um, been part of the team. And I can still remember their look of, of shock at seeing me. And I said, uh, or, you know, basically asked them what it was about, what that's about. And they said, uh, we thought you'd just be dead by now. Mm. And it was um, that kind of uh, blunt and thoughtful um, a response. Um, but I also had expected to be dead by then. So the way I dealt with it was, I don't know how much time I've got. I'll do what's in front of me. What I can do, and basically my my idea was, I'm going to put a dent in this as much as I can before it puts a kind of a terminal dent in me. And uh, just went forward. So, Rupert, after, um, you know, this, this near-death experience, uh, you start um, developing a career in medical research and you develop, po you, 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 you get postdoctoral fellowships from Tufts, from Michigan, from UCSF. Now, that's, that's quite rare in a medical career. Uh, I, I suppose, what were you thinking? And, and, and you know, were you seeing the connections between um, psychiatry, uh, immunology, and um, uh, sort of mental spiritual health that, that you referred to earlier with your experience with Tibetan medicine? I, I was actually interested in it, uh, but that was a, a sort of very much a personal uh, interest. What I saw, what I was interested in, in first, because I sort of came from a basically a psychology background, um, was how do you inf can you influence your body through your mind or your behaviour? And of course, yes, you can, because your behaviour includes everything, including not just your thinking, but what you eat, exercise, etc. So, yeah, of course, you can influence your, your, your um, health and body through behaviour. But I was also interested in how. Um, and that was uh, looking at what are the um, mechanisms in the brain in particular that regulate those systems, um, and what are there, what's the overlap with the uh, systems that regulate, such as awareness, intentionality, emotions in particular, and the interaction between cognition and emotion. Um, so that was the sort of, uh, if you will, the psychoimmunology side of things. Then the a sort of a more standard psychiatry side of things was, well, was neuropsychiatry was looking at um, the effects of HIV in the brain and the substrates, if you will, of dementia um, or neurocognitive uh, uh, deficits in HIV. So I did some of that work too. Um, and my the area that I focused on was on cytokines, which are soluble messengers uh, that are shared between the immune system and the brain many times, and um, how they talk to each other. So that's kind of where I was uh, coming to from this. But as a fairly uh, lowly researcher, you don't get the chance or the choice really to choose what mm. you do. You really sort of try and have to sort of um, piggyback on other research um, of established scientists. I, I, I this strikes me as so 
horrific, but also um, your your push your push into research sort of snaps you back into reality. Because in 1993, you had a stroke, and you know that had a devastating mm. cognitive, communications, visual mobility, a whole set of effects on you. Um, um, you know, again, you refused to die, and you had years of rehabilitation. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's not so much a question of how did you keep going, but given this background, given this understanding of the brain, the body, the spirit, how did you reclaim your life over such a long period of time that followed? It's uh, yeah, that is a, a, a tough question to answer all in all, but um, they, 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 I mean, the stroke was unrelated to HIV. It was going to happen at some point anyway because it was something. It was a defect that I was born with. Um, but uh, I, I had the stroke, and yes, I, I kind of did refuse to die because I was found on the floor of my cabin about four days later um, by a friend who just happened to be sort of passing by. And anyway, so uh, and also I got um, misdiagnosed at first. It was it was sinusitis, um, not quite. So, um, but once I'd actually got the, a proper diagnosis, I'd had brain surgery, which left me with epilepsy. I was I still am partially sighted, mm -hmm. um, but I had to really start again um, from scratch in many ways. But I was really lucky in the neurologist I had. Uh, Joel Reiter in Northern California. He was a uh, sympathetic, um, or rather compassionate, open-minded man. And um, he really helped me. The biggest thing that he did was to point me to some uh, EEG training. So basically you learn to use your behavior to control your body. In this instance, it was using your mind to control certain brain waves. Just explain to us what EEG is. So uh, the brain, as part of its function, um, produces electricity um, or electrical uh, waveforms of various types. Uh, and they, they are in various uh, frequencies, if you will. And uh, EEG is the measurement of that. It's electroencephalography. Now, what you can do is you can train parts of your brain um, to, or parts of those frequencies to be stronger, to occur in certain situations. And what happens um, when you induce a certain type of um, frequency is that you're, you develop a very clear focus, complete calm. There are some similarities here with um, fairly intense meditation practices, which I had already been doing in any case. But what it also does is it inhibits seizures. So I learned uh, how to um, uh, sort of evoke, if you will, those specific brain frequencies through behaviors, through practice. It took quite a long time to get them, them right. But eventually, it meant I could go off medication for epilepsy. Um, I could function. Um, it required years of training, but it worked. Yeah. So I no longer have to take medication for epilepsy, and I, I haven't, and I, we can drive and everything now. So it's not a problem. 
I mean, epilepsy was the biggest problem for me in many ways. And then I guess some sometime in the mid 2000s, you, you came off the epilepsy medicine, but you were still obviously very much on your HIV meds. Um, and, and you found that they were affecting some of the stroke related brain injuries that you had. And, and you know, here again, uh, the medical establishment gives you six months to live. But if I understand this correctly, the, the, the solution really was to just tweak the uh, HIV medicines that, that, that you have. Um, can you talk a bit about that and, and, and what happened? Well, I'd, yeah, I'd been on HIV meds since AZT came out. Um, and I'd, uh, I think that a little bit of a background to this is that I was, I mean, I'd lost so many friends um, to AIDS. And I was super adherent. I mean, there were, I had eight years of um, explosive diarrhea every day. And um, I just, you know, you, you say tough, you get on with it um, because the alternative is dying. Yeah. So um, this particular thing happened. It was a neuropsychiatric and a neuromuscular disorder and it left me with a, a type of psychosis um, and with me dragging my legs and I had to hold onto a wall to get around. I lost about um, an eighth of my body weight in a, a couple of weeks. And I was already at 10% body fat, so I didn't have much to lose. So again, six months to, to live um, and switched one of the medications from Sustiva to another one in the same class. So the psychosis resolved, great. The neuromuscular problem didn't um and <coughs> sorry um so the neuromuscular problem didn't and i was in and out of hospital including in emergency um intakes a couple of times um because i could not put on weight and um the the effects were were kind of were awful um I mean, I had to try and sleep um, in cold baths, uh, to sleep kneeling. Um, I would, I, I tried everything to try and sleep and I was getting two, maybe three hours of sleep a night for months. Um, and it was, uh, that was, you know, enough to cause uh, strain. So what happened anyway, I, I was taking it in to uh, the super specialist hospital um, in London for neurology. <laughs> Had loads of tests. One um, afternoon, the professor comes in and throws my medical records at me, saying, you're making it up. Whoa. And uh, so basically the next day I was out, um, but with some friends, I then flew to, with, with the support from friends, I sort of flew to California, back to UCSF, where I'd done my last postdoc. Um, saw a super specialist neurologist there, and he said something that nobody in two years in Britain had said, which was, I don't know. Mm. I've never seen this before. I don't know what it is. Best bet, stop all your HIV meds, and we'll see what happens. So, I, of course, I was really loath to do that, but I did it. Yeah. Ten days later, I was effectively fine. And so that experience in those two years in the British um, system taught me a hell of a lot. 
um, and it's not a, those those aren't really sort of um, particularly good lessons, but uh, they're, I think they're very useful ones. I'm left now with some sort of uh, pain, particularly at night, but I can actually sleep, yeah. um, and I get at least five hours a night now. So uh, yeah, that was it, it. Was not good, but that actually then pushed me to sort of find out. Okay, why is this? Why is this happening? Yeah, I mean, and the temptation in in many other folks, myself certainly, might be to withdraw and and just say, "Oh, okay." But what happens with you yeah. is that you you know you you take this on full force, and and then that sort of brings us to two thousand and seven when you established the Tuke Institute, uh, a, a think tank and. Um, a virtual platform um, where you convene sort of cross-disciplinary research and look at the different ways in which um, uh, healthcare can be, prov be provided. And one thing that really has really fascinated me about Tuke, and as you know, I, I, I've watched you as you've developed it over these years, is you know really this idea of moving healthcare from disease services to patient health services. Um, and and I wonder if you could. I mean, you've you've set the stage amazingly, um, and it's hugely personal. But that sort of uh, patient-oriented health services. What do you mean by that? Well, health services are supposed to be the thing that helps you get well and stay well. In my experience, they haven't. They've uh, been, but basically, they've made me worse many times. So, so, how, so what, what causes that? I want to sort of pick that apart and say, what can we do to change things? Um, what do we have currently? And it's a disease service. And the idea, particularly with HIV, for instance, okay, you've got zero viral load. Well, you're fine then. Um, and there is a kind of a, kind of a sick doublespeak about this. With me, it was the sort of message was, well, you've got an undetectable viral load. We can't find what's wrong with you, so you must be making the symptoms up, uh, which means you're well, um, even though you have to rely on a food bank because you can't feed yourself because you're too ill, but you've lost so much weight, can't walk properly, can't sleep, can't get a job, uh, you've got complex PTSD from the, sort of the whole experience of um, AIDS and recurrent depression. But mm, then again, those things aren't what proper medicine deals with anyway. So really, when it comes down to it, you're well. And that was this sort of bizarre situation. It was a surreal situation that I had. Um, and I remember one of the last things I said, okay, I, I need a referral to a clinical psychologist to start unpicking this. And the quote was, okay, well, I'll refer you to one of the girls. And Oh, my that... God, disrespectful on so many fronts. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. But what it is in Britain, at least, is this um, what I call physician-centered medicine. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to that, that medicine is what physicians do and only physicians do. Anything else is very much secondary. It's what the, um, the chairman of the government advisory group on AIDS calls window dressing. Um, I asked and said, okay, so, um, HIV is a behaviorally driven pandemic. So, and just now you're getting non-physicians on the board after 25 years. 
So why is that? He said it's window dressing. And that is the problem. That it comes down to what a lot of people call, well, uh, not all of it, but a large chunk of it is this medical model. But actually, that to say that means that medicine is owned by physicians, yeah. and it's not. Yeah. Because physicians can't provide everything that we need to get well and stay well. It needs a, a real team. Um, so the the thing there is that if what you what can you do to shift things you to to shift the discourse um, away from a disease service that's physician centered to a health service that's teams team based and patient centered. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what my work has been about. Do you know, it makes me think, uh, Rupert, of this long COVID um, experience that many people infected with COVID have had over the last year, and which in some settings, medical professionals have um, either dismissed or um, uh, not prioritised. And, and I think one of the things that really concerns me with COVID um, and you you mentioned window dressing from the UK, maybe in a very different way. There's something slightly, um, something happening here in the US. We've had four years of charlatans running our um, uh, every mm. aspect of the administration with no degree or degrees in things that are entirely unrelated and life experiences that are even more unrelated. And so you have this move now to sort of re-medicalize um, and, and sort of recenter uh, our approach to COVID and to health services. The risk is that we uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and, and throw out the experience. Um, and I wonder just what advice you would, you know, you'd want to offer us as we try and get that balance right, particularly from this strange US perspective. Yeah, it's an, it, it is a really uh, difficult um, challenge there. The problem is that COVID um, is actually a fairly classic pandemic. There's nothing unprecedented about it. Um, the responses should have been very straightforward, tough, but straightforward. Those advantages of a, of a, a, a classic response, which happened in New Zealand very successfully, um, the advantages have been lost. What, so along comes a vaccine, fabulous, great. Everybody needs that. Um, but what it threatens to do is to say, all right, well, we've got technology or biotechnology to save us again. What we, it's the same thing with HIV. We forgot so many of the lessons from HIV um, with basically the re-biomedicalization yeah of the response to uh, to that pandemic. Um, you know, um, COVID is driven by behavior. HIV is driven by behavior, mm. social behavior, mixing. Okay, part of that is necessary. Sex is necessary. How do you navigate that? How do you negotiate the difficulties? Um, uh, sort of encouraging to people, uh, encouraging people to use masks it's actually not that different from encouraging men to use condoms. Right. Yeah. But it's pretty difficult. Yeah. 
So how do you do it? And how do you get people to uh, puncture denialism? How do you prevent denialism from occurring? So these are, these are all uh, lessons that we should have learned. And in, and in fact, during HIV, we did learn and seem to have forgotten them. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what I was talking about before, which is this, it's got to be physical, mental and social uh, approach. Um, and one of the interesting things with HIV, particularly, um, and there's a parallel with COVID, I think, is once the biotechnology in the form of pharmaceuticals came in in 96, people stopped dying. The community was pushed out of the clinics. Yeah. We went back to the old physician-centered model, which is actually there's nothing you, you offer us. So because we've got everything now, we've got the pills, people aren't dying. So that's it. Great. No viral load, then they're well. And we forgot all those lessons. One of the really interesting things, though, now in 2020, as we face a new pandemic, is the role of technology. Um, I mean, I was I was thinking one of the um, the first um, uh, things that I was doing with the Terence Higgins Trust was part of this group that was uh, pissing off primary care physicians or general practitioners, as we called them, by faxing them every Friday the latest information on clinical research. And of course, it would just completely eat up their fax machine and prevent them from doing anything. <laughs> but here we are in 2021 and we've got technology. We've got telehealth. We have electronic m medical records. And, and I know mm. a priority for Duke, for you, is, is to enhance the better use of technology. Um, and it's really interesting to me that your priorities are sometimes similar, but not entirely the same as, say, a Silicon Valley startup seeking to disrupt the healthcare market. Um, nonetheless, you're, mm. you're pretty cutting edge, you know, real-time patient monitoring, clinical effectiveness, clinician effectiveness. Um, mm. and, and it really interests me, the uh, emphasis that you put on informed consent right across the spe spectrum. And I, I, I wonder if you could talk about that and how that might disrupt the um, the healthcare model. Yes, I, it, what I what I did once I had sort of unpacked what's going on with these uh, with the basically the system of medicine, saying, okay, well, these are all the things that are really not working for patients. Okay, so what do you do? And th what it came down to is that you have to take the discourse away from physician-centered medicine which means that you have often to take, mostly to take away the forms of measurement of success. Now, one of the interesting things in COVID is that, especially long COVID, is that the symptoms of that, um, that research has been led by patients. Yeah. They've got together to say, to make a list and include people and say, okay, this is what the story is. And they're not letting that go. Now, one of the, so that relates to one of the pieces of um, software that I've uh, envisaged. Um, in fact, it's a suite of software, but the, the primary one, but the, and the very first one, I think should be uh, under Commons license. The latter ones could uh, rely on it, but they you know, would be um, you know, uh, commercial perhaps. So it's getting the right data and having the public own it. So it's not, it's as a patient not reporting on, say, a 10 point scale of quality of life, 
but um, in sort of terms that make sense for patients. So the patient reports into her smartphone yeah. that she can't pick up her kids up today from school because of pain. And she's having to pay someone else to do it, even though she can't hold it down a job at the moment and is coping less and less. Okay. There's no tech currently um, that, to measure that, but it's actually not um, that difficult. And what, what it, um, all the ingredients are there from, except the um, scientific skills of matching natural language the, with the relevant taxonomy, which is actually a WHO taxonomy. Mm. Um, and using that, you can get patients with outputs saying, great, yeah, lovely, that treatment you've given me for the last six months, it's done nothing. Look, here's my output yeah. from my, from my um, digital tech. And what you can do then is that you can start to audit performance, clinical effectiveness. You can see, okay, that clinic over there is doing a great job. It's, uh, and most likely it would be nurse-led, biopsychosocial, et cetera, et cetera. And it looks to um, deal with the whole person. Compared to that clinic over there, which actually isn't really doing well, and we, kind of, we can look at why. So you can then break down that and you can report on um, those audits publicly. Um, the, another thing is a uh, different form of tech is um, open records. Yeah. Um, so that patients can write in their own medical records. And you can be very sure that if that had been in place um, when I was in the uh, Institute of Neurology, that professor would not have thrown my medical records at me. Yeah. Because in real time, I could say, he's just throwing my medical records at me and then file a complaint. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a way then of creating an evidence trail. And that to me, because I worked for also for 10 years in medical legal uh, forensic um, psychiatry, that is essential because you need that to create leverage for change. So it's really um, interesting. Sorry, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Mm. It's really interesting for you to talk about medical records in those in those ways, because the uh, the thinking might be that you have a series of facts in inverted commas, clinical markers or diagnoses or observations that are in that medical record, and that information then goes into some app, some, some uh, uh, a tool that then tells the health professional or the public health um, administrator what to be doing and how to drive things. The idea of the, um, uh, the patient, the, the customer owning and, and, and being able to contribute to that is, is sort of fairly radical in this new environment. And it, it sort of feels like we're reinventing the wheel again. Yes, in some ways, it's reinventing the wheel of medicine. So that it's, it's saying, yeah, actually, it is about helping patients get well and stay well, which is basically what the Greeks um, uh, originally was focused on. It wasn't biotech. Biotech is essential, yeah, but it's um, necessary. Well, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient to create health. So, um, and I think getting the right sort of tech to um, to patients so that they can create influence is important. And it also then um, 
contributes to other aspects of the solution that I've been talking about, which is monetary democracy, which is that shared audit, and patient participation. But it's, um, it's not about the patient participation that um, it, you would typically see in, say, satisfaction surveys, yeah. which I have no time for <laughs> at all. Oh, and which with, uh, with many of our healthcare providers here in Northern California, we get all the time. Um, but, yeah. but look, I know we're, we're coming to the top of the hour and I, mm. you know I've got to ask this. There's no getting away from it. Have you watched <laughs> It's a Sin, that dramatization of the lives of young LGBT people in the early 80s in, in, in London? Well, uh, funny you should ask. Um, just last week, I did a thing for BBC Breakfast um, on this, and we were all there by Zoom with the cast. Uh, well, it was me, um, a, a buddy from the, that era, and then the cast. And I had to admit to them I hadn't seen it. Um, I've seen clips, um, and to be we're in lockdown now, and um, I live on my own. Um, my partner visits on weekends, but okay, that's uh, he doesn't actually want to see it um, because he, for his own reasons, I cannot really. Uh, I've seen from what I've seen in the clips, I'm not up to seeing it on my own yet. Yeah, it's uh, it's really hard. I'm I so it's just I think been released in the United States. I am I am a serial binge watcher, but I can't bring yeah. myself to see it. It's it it feels too painful. I feel as though I need to put mm. on, I need to sort of uh, strengthen myself before before sitting mm. and watching that. Uh, I'm I'm relying on Gus Cairns and Lisa Power to Facebook mm. the odd messages about how this is right or that is wrong. But yeah, I'm in exactly the same boat. I, I don't feel I'm in a place where I can watch it yet. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not surprised. I think from what I've heard, many of us who are longer term survivors or had long experience with HIV um, in, in the community, uh, a lot of us have real trouble with this. Yeah. Um, I've, I, I've been treated for PTSD. Um, which has been really, really helpful. Um, and I don't break down sobbing. I get teary now. Um, and I don't have nightmares. But I'm not going to basically ask for trouble here. Yeah. Um, I need somebody to watch it with. Yeah. I, I completely understand. Mm. So... Yeah, and I understand yours. Yeah. yeah. So, so ending this on a, a much more lighter note... Uh, here you are, you're in, in lockdown in the UK. We call it shelter in place here in Northern California. How are you, any tips for our, our viewers and audience? What are you doing to stay sane? Any other shows that you binge watch or books that you're reading? Well, I, I'm really not the best model for this at all. Um, I, I tend to work um, and uh, intersperse various um i i mean I, I run a fair deal um now that i the neuromuscular thing is resolved i don't i don't have a problem with running and uh, i have to do that and that keeps me fairly balanced but basically i don't go out of this flat most of the time um my my partner has had covid 
Um, and so I didn't see him for a month. And he also has lymphoma, which is so I was thinking the worst. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we talk every day. So the thing is about connection. Um, even though Zoom and video is uh, very much a second best, yeah. keeping keeping the connection, keep exercise, do do things that um, are, are joyous, um, if if possible, or just utterly absorbing. Yeah. And for me, I also use meditation, um, and uh, I take time when <laughs> when it's very rarely sunny here, um, just looking at the the. Peak District and currently the snow on them um, and uh, that sort of stuff yeah connection I think is the most important I I, com I completely agree my uh, my place of serenity you will you will wet yourself when I tell you this my place of serenity <laughs> at the moment is Michael Foote's biography of Nye Bevan and oh come on <laughs> do you know it's the second time I've read it and I, maybe I've spent too much time in the United States. I truly don't understand half of it. It's in such a really? an English of a different era. But it puts you oh, into yes. a state of um, a sort of a mild coma. <laughs> <laughs> I think that helps. It's that numbing, yes, yeah, detachment. Yeah. yeah. I think we, we can all use that in a healthy way. In a healthy way, um, exactly. During this process. Well, look, yeah. Rupert, we've we've come to the end of uh of this podcast uh what our viewers and our listeners won't know is the technical challenges that we've had getting this uh done and so i'm hugely grateful to you for your for your patience um dr rupert whittaker you are a shot in the arm <laughs> thanks very much ben. it's been lovely to chat with you so thanks very much indeed no, thank you. I also want to thank our director and producer, Eric Aspera of Newsdoc Media, who's kept us going over this last, uh, this last recording period. I also want to thank Sean Howell, our executive producer. Thanks to Sarah Anderson of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and, of course, to Brian Ragas, our program manager. And finally, a huge thanks to you. If you have any questions or suggestions about this or any other of our shows, don't hesitate to contact us through Facebook or Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. So we would love it if you give us five stars on Apple uh, Podcasts. Leave us a review. It'll help us spread the word. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.